You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Hi, everybody. Um, we have a long reading today, so that's great. Um, we're starting in chapter 18 at verse 12 and then rolling into 19 as well. There are Bibles at the end of the rows and also behind me. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire where they had, they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him on the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace, because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? 
Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest, but the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is the truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him on the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he answered. He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, Don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Thanks, Christina. Uh, Please keep your Bibles open if you have one. Uh, My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. And it's wonderful to have some visitors here for Samuel's baptism today and a few other visitors around. Uh, Welcome. Great to have you with us. As you've probably figured out, we're working through the Gospel of John at the moment. 
if you'd find an outline helpful, we have an outline on our website on the welcome card. Uh, so you can search for that, uh, www.darabinpc.com.au slash welcome card. Uh, as we come to think about this passage, let's pray that God would be with us. Heavenly Father, as we come to this day, this Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, we are already thinking about uh, Jesus' death and what that means. And so as we think today about uh, his experience that we've just read, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds, helping us to understand uh, what this means. I pray that you would use my imperfect words to do your perfect work in our lives. Amen. I imagine that some people might think that Jesus' death was a great tragedy and that God must have been terribly upset. Maybe they see it as a lesson about the cruelty of people or the dangers of mob mentality. Perhaps they consider Jesus to be the victim of politics or bigotry. But in reality, Jesus' death was all part of God's wonderful plan to rescue and restore people. This wasn't a detour in God's plan that he had to accommodate. This was the destination of God's plan. And usually Christians, we might point to the resurrection as the proof that Jesus' death was intended. But today I want to show you how the trial of Jesus is another line of evidence. It's a gripping courtroom drama that takes place over several stages. And there are a few key players involved. There's lots of political intrigue and there are some truly shocking moments. Yet it's a totally unsurprising trial. Not because it's boring or routine. Rather, it's unsurprising because Jesus expected it. And he was in complete control every step of the way. Despite the bad behaviour of everyone involved, it went down exactly as God had planned. This doesn't just give us confidence that Jesus' death was intentional. It also gives us confidence that in the midst of our own bad behaviour, Jesus is able to help us. And nothing we do catches him by surprise. And also as we face our own trials in life, we can be confident that we are not on our own. So will you join with me as we look at the unsurprising trial of Jesus? We're taking it from John's account, which stretches from verse 12 of chapter 18 right through to verse 16 of chapter 19. Christine did a magnificent job reading out that large chunk. And you'll be pleased to know we're not going to go into all the details, otherwise we might be here all night. Instead, we're going to take a bit of a bird's eye view and then we'll just swoop down to look closer at a few points. Our passage begins with Jesus' arrest, which occurred in the Garden of Gethsemane. It then moves quickly into the trial and we encounter a number of characters and each one's view of Jesus and how they respond to him reveals that Jesus truly was in control. So let's get started then with our first point where we learn about priests and an accidental prophecy. The first character who reveals that Jesus was in control of his own trial is actually a duo, two high priests. Now, that should confuse us, shouldn't it? Because there should only be one high priest. Yet, in John 18, 
we see this title is given to two men, to Annas and Caiaphas. So listen to verses 12 and 13 to see how this worked. Then the, t- then, uh, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. So Annas had already served as high priest from 6 AD to 15 AD, and then years later his own son-in-law Caiaphas became the high priest. He was the high priest at the time of Jesus and up until 36 AD. Yet Annas was still around in the background. He still wielded great power and was referred to as the high priest by the Jews, even though he didn't officially serve in that role. And even John gives him that title down in verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So the Jewish leaders, they had to gather together so they could convene a meeting of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and then they could put Jesus on trial. While this is happening, while all of these people are gathering together, Annas decides he's going to interrogate Jesus, just not actually legal. So it seems that Annas is using his political power to satisfy his own curiosity about this travelling rabbi or perhaps to even get a confession out of him before the hearing. He questions Jesus about how many disciples he has and what's this dangerous teaching he's been disseminating. Jesus responds in verses 20 and 21 by saying he's got no secret agenda and his teachings are a matter of public record. This angers one of the officials who slaps him in the face for his supposed disrespect. Jesus defends his innocence because he knows that this is an illegal proceeding. Yet at the same time, he doesn't try to win his freedom. That's because he knows something. You can see it on the outline. Jesus knew he'd be betrayed so he could die for his people. It was no surprise to Jesus that Judas betrayed him to the Jewish leaders. He knew it would happen so that he could fulfil the ancient scriptures. In fact, there was even a recent prophecy that he was set to fulfil. John refers us to it in verse 14 when he reminds us of who Caiaphas was. He writes, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. I'm going to read out John 11 for you, verses 47 to 52. And this took place after Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead and caused a bit of a stir. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. The irony is that the high priest thinks it's politically expedient to execute Jesus. He's had to save our nation. Let's get rid of this troublemaker. Yet, 
as God's appointed high priest that year, he is unwittingly speaking a divine prophecy of how Jesus will soon die for the sake of his people so as to truly save them. So what does this mean for us? It's the next dot point in our outline. All people can trust the teaching of Jesus and trust in his substitutionary death. First of all, there's no secret teaching or hidden agenda from Jesus. It's all there plainly in the Bible for anyone to read. There's no secret manual that's given to Christians after they convert. There's no secret manual given to ministers upon their ordination. I didn't get one. Ask any reader of the Bible and you can learn what Jesus taught. Or even better yet, you can read it for yourself. Secondly, Jesus didn't just die for the Jewish people, for that nation, but all sorts of people. In fact, anyone who trusts in him can be forgiven. See, he doesn't fight for his freedom at this time because he knows that he has to face this trial, however corrupt, so that he can die for our freedom. And so our response is to have faith in him. So if you haven't done that yet, then I encourage you to do so. You're going to face many trials in life, but none like the one you'll face at the end of your life when you have to give an account to God for how you've lived. And the wonderful thing is if you trust in Jesus now, you can be assured that you'll be forgiven, you'll be in the clear on the final day. The next character in these true events who reveals that Jesus was in control is Peter. Peter the bold, Peter the brash, Peter who pulled out a sword and took a swing at a guy's head to defend his master. Peter who followed a safe distance after Jesus was arrested in the hope that he could maybe help Jesus in some way. And Peter who then three times denied his teacher, his friend. In this account we read that there was actually another nameless disciple that was with him at the same time. It's almost certain this was John. In verses 15 and 16, we read that John was known by the high priest. Perhaps he had family connections. So he's the one who actually helped Peter get inside the courtyard. And as they enter, the servant girl on duty at the gate questions Peter. Look at verse 17. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. That's strike one. And since it was cold, Peter joins those who are warming themselves around a fire. In verse 25, another person quizzes Peter. You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Peter again denies it with the simple, I am not. That's strike two. And then someone else speaks up and it's a bit of a worrying one. You see, it's a relative of the guy that Peter attacked. That Malchus guy whose ear he cut off. And this man says, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Now, we don't know what went through Peter's mind, but if you had just assaulted someone and then found yourself in the middle of the night surrounded by his friends, family and co-workers, you might be tempted to lie as well. He recalls his sword strike and so he denies that he was with Jesus in the garden. That's strike three. Yet, Jesus knew Peter would deny him. 
And this further shows that Jesus was in control of his own trial. You may recall back in John chapter 13, Peter said he would lay down his life for Jesus. And then Jesus responded with these words. Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Perhaps this prediction doubled Peter's resolve to follow the arrested Jesus to the high priest's house. It didn't change the outcome, did it? He disowned Jesus and then verse 27 tells us that a rooster crowed. Now John doesn't tell us how Peter reacted in the moment. We're not told how Jesus reacted in the moment. But we can read later on that Jesus forgave Peter. And this leads to an important truth that Christians can hold on to. You ready for it? It's in your outline. Christians can be confident that Jesus is not surprised when we fail him and he will forgive us. If you're interested, you can read John 21 later on where Jesus forgives and restores Peter. But in summary, after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus met with Peter and asked him three times if Peter loved him. And each time the disciple answered, yes. But he got upset by Jesus' repeated questioning. Yet it's clear that Jesus is showing him that just as Peter denied him three times, Jesus forgave him three times. Jesus foretold Peter's denials to show the apostles and to show us that he was in control of his trial. It was no accident that he was arrested. It was no accident that his disciples abandoned him. In fact, Jesus needed to be sentenced to death so that he could die as a substitute for all of his people. See, just like Peter, we can't faithfully follow Jesus until we first receive his death in our place. But once we receive it by faith, we can be assured that Jesus will never leave us, he will never forsake us. Jesus knew that Peter would stuff up. And he knows that we will stuff up. You know, we speak bold words about Jesus in church, in our gospel communities during the week. But at work or school or social gatherings, we can shrink back when pressed about our faith. Last month, I organised a birthday dinner for my mum. Invited a bunch of family and some aunties and cousins came along. It was great. had a wonderful time. I got to meet my cousin's boyfriend and my cousin's mum, my auntie, uh, pointed out that this boyfriend was a Catholic and she told him that I'm a Presbyterian minister and that's a different religion. And I tried to explain, well, that's not actually how it worked, and, but that kind of got lost in the conversation because then we were talking about how when uh, Catholics are confirmed, they take on the name of a saint. And so they said, Adam, what saint name would you take on? And I made some joke about the saint of lost causes and it kind of all moved on. Now I had the perfect opportunity to speak about Jesus, didn't I? I could have said, well, I already bear the name of Jesus. I don't need another name. But I choked. I stumbled over my words. I felt like a fool. I was back to birthday parties when I was little Adam with my aunties and cousins. I felt like a fool and felt like I'd failed Jesus in that moment. 
But do you think Jesus was surprised? Do you think Jesus was looking down from heaven and screamed, what are you doing, you fool? You call yourself a Presbyterian minister? Of course not. He knows. He forgives. I sin and let my Lord down. I I fail to publicly own him. And trust me, I do it in much bigger ways than stumbling at a dinner party. I fail to speak up when I should. I shrink back from being identified as a Christian in public. I feel ashamed at times about what others might think of me. But Jesus doesn't love me any less because he's already gone to the cross for me. And you know what? He's already gone to the cross for you too. And there is no way that you can so fail him that he will stop loving you and forgiving you. So bring your failings to him. Say sorry and receive his forgiveness. That brings us to the third and final character I want to mention this afternoon. He too shows us that Jesus was in complete control of his own trial. We're going to look at Pilate and an inevitable death sentence. John doesn't actually share with us any details about the trial in front of the Sanhedrin. John also doesn't mention about Jesus appearing before Herod, the the king. We have to look to Matthew, Mark and Luke's account for those. However, what we clearly see here is that even though the Jewish leaders and Pilate, they think that they are in control, this is actually ultimately God's plan that is unfolding. Now, I know most of you here are familiar with the encounter between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. So again, we're going to keep soaring up for our bird's eye view and just swooping down when we need to. The Sanhedrin have determined that Jesus must die. And they know they don't have the authority to execute anyone under Roman rule. So they take him to the Roman governor, Pilate. In verse 29 he says, What charges are you bringing against this man? And they somewhat obnoxiously respond, well, if he were not a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. But we learn soon enough that they have charged Jesus with treason. He's claiming to be the king of the Jews and so he opposes Caesar. Now, Pilate's not particularly concerned and so he tries to wash his hands of the whole situation but the Jews keep insisting So he speaks to Jesus about the nature of his kingship to which Jesus replies that his kingdom is not of this world which is why he's not concerned with fighting for his freedom. Pilate therefore pushes back against the Jews to try to get out of this messy political situation. And so three times he says to them, I find no basis for a charge against him. The first time you can see is in verse 38. He then offers to release Jesus as part of his annual Passover tradition. Every year at Passover, he would let one of their prisoners go free. That's a clever move, isn't it? Helps the leaders save face. They can still say, yes, Jesus was condemned and convicted as a criminal, but Pilate can also set him free. Avoid an unnecessary execution. But the Jews are not having it. They surprise Pilate by demanding that Barabbas be set free instead. So 
Pilate sends Jesus off to be flogged. Check out verses 2 and 3 of chapter 19 to see what the soldiers did to him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. How does that make you feel? It's horrible, isn't it? These men, they torture Jesus. They mock him. But this didn't surprise Jesus. This leads us to the next piece of information that Jesus already knew. He knew he would be crucified. Pilate brings Jesus out again to the Jews and he's now dressed as a king, but one that's covered in blood and probably struggling to stand up. Perhaps Pilate thought he could show that to the Jews, this supposed king of the Jews, he's no threat to Rome. Look at him. We don't need to kill him. Pilate declares for a second time, I find no basis for a charge against him. But as soon as the chief priests and officials see him in verse 6, they cry out, crucify, crucify. Let's just pause there. As you probably know, that means putting Jesus onto a wooden cross. And it might surprise you to know that this is the very first time in John's Gospel that crucifixion is mentioned. There's no speech about the cross until this point. You know, we're so familiar with these events that we might very well miss the literary genius of John. Jesus has repeatedly said that he will die, but he's actually never said how. In fact, his words have always been a bit cryptic. And it's only here that the pieces of the puzzle fall into place. Look back at verses 31 and 32 of chapter 18. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfil what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. The Jews, they favoured stoning as their means of execution. Only the Romans could kill someone on a cross. And Jesus knew that that was how he would die. Let me read out John 12, verses 32 and 33 to show you what I mean. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Several times we read Jesus saying that he's going to be lifted up. But these words are a bit ambiguous because it could mean to be exalted and honoured. Or it could mean to be lifted up on a cross and humiliated. It's only now in chapter 19 that we finally see what Jesus meant all along. The high point of his mission was being placed up high on a cross. His crowning achievement was to be killed with a crown of thorns on his head. Jesus knew this was coming because he knew that the only way to set us free was for him to bear the scorn and shame that we deserve. To set us free, he must be condemned and treated as a criminal. And crucifixion makes it 100% clear that Jesus is suffering in our place. No other death was quite so horrific, so painful, 
so shameful. It's thought that the word excruciating actually comes from the experience of being crucified. The excruciating crucifixion, you can see the, the link there. It's coming out of the cross. To secure people to the cross, sometimes their wrists were nailed to the crossbeam. And I mean like right through there, in between the bones to hold their arms in place. And so they were painfully pierced through their nerves in the wrists, causing excruciating pain. It wasn't just painful, it was also shameful. Because criminals were hung on a cross for hours or even days in public view. A stoning was, over, was done in seconds, in minutes. But crucified people served as a warning to those passing by, do not mess with Rome. But they're also scorned by those who looked upon them. As Jesus hung on the cross, naked and bleeding, people heaped abuse on him and brought him shame. Jesus indeed was lifted up, wasn't he? He was lifted up high on a cross and at the same time brought low in humiliation. He suffered physically and psychologically. And he knew it would happen. And what's more, he didn't just let it happen, he intended for it to happen. He was not an unfortunate victim, but a willing partner in God the Father's plan. Which brings us to the next dot point in the outline. Jesus knew it was the Father's will that he laid down his life. Pilate's getting a bit desperate now. He tries for a third time to set Jesus free. In verse 6, he says, for the third time, I find no basis for a charge against him. And the Jewish leaders say that Jesus must die because he's claim, he claims to be the Son of God. And this freaks Pilate out because while he's not a Jew, he's also not an atheist. He believes in the supernatural. He knows that this is an innocent man and perhaps he's got supernatural connections. And so Pilate says to Jesus, don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And look at Jesus' response in verse 11. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. There it is. This is all God's plan. Jesus knows it. Even back in John 10, when speaking of his role as the good shepherd who cares for God's flock, Jesus said that the Father had given him the authority to lay down his life and the authority to take it up again. Pilate is desperate to let this innocent man go, but it doesn't matter. You see, Jesus' death sentence was inevitable. Jesus' death as an innocent man was no accident. It was no tragic end for a noble hero. He was not the victim of people who made bad choices. In fact, here's the key to our whole sermon today. Jesus wasn't surprised by people's bad behaviour during his trial because it was all part of the plan to save people. So what does that mean for us? Well, we've already looked at a few ideas, haven't we? We've seen that all people can trust the teaching of Jesus because he never kept it secret. And he was open about how it all led to his death. 
We've seen that all people can trust in the substitutionary death because of Jesus because he freely took the death sentence as an innocent man so that he could pay the penalty that we owe for our own bad behaviour. Because let's face it, we're like the people in this story that at times we're hypocrites, at times we're cowards. We make bad decisions. We've also seen that Christians can be confident that Jesus is not surprised when we fail him. He's not surprised about our ongoing bad behaviour. In fact, he will forgive us. The final idea I've learned from this passage is that Christians are helped by God in times of suffering and shame. It's so easy to feel that when life is good, God must be watching over us. But when life is hard, that's a lot more difficult, isn't it? We can feel like God has abandoned us. You might think that his good plans have gone off the rails. Maybe he's lost sight of us. Maybe his power is being overwhelmed by some evil power or maybe his power is limited by our own sin and failing. That's actually not true. You see, during the darkest time of human history, when the very Son of God was on trial, God the Father was still in control. The worst event that could ever happen, the death of Jesus, has already taken place. And God was sovereign over every conversation, every response, every detail. It was all part of his plan. If he was in control during the worst time ever, we know that he'll be in control when we experience bad times. When we face trials, we can be sure that God has not abandoned us. When you face the trials of suffering, know that Jesus has suffered too. When you're condemned by the court of public opinion, know that Jesus was despised too. When you're betrayed by your friends, by your leaders, by your own people, know that Jesus was betrayed too. When you are punished, whether deservedly or undeservedly, know that Jesus was punished too. When you are exposed and humiliated so that people mock you or shun you, know that Jesus was humiliated too. He did all of that for you. It's part of God's good plan. So be comforted. Know that God will help you in the midst of suffering and shame. Jesus wasn't surprised by people's bad behaviour during his trial because it was all part of God's plan to save people. And so our bad behaviour is covered by Jesus' death and he is with us when we endure the bad behaviour of others. Let's pray. We thank you, our Lord Jesus, that even as you faced the greatest trial of your life, even when you faced the evil deeds of wicked men, as you faced the rejection and denial of your own disciples, you were still completely in control. You knew where you were headed and you didn't flinch. You continued to the cross for our benefit. And so may we know that during that darkest hour when you were still in control, that you are still in control when we face dark times too. May we draw comfort and hope and assurance from that. Amen.